Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us today. We're very glad for your interest in spiritual things. My name is Ethan Longhenry and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Paul wrote to the Colossians the following, in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now Paul and Timothy have written to encourage the Colossian Christians to stand firm in the faith according to the gospel that they heard, and not to be deceived by arguments rooted in philosophy, tradition, mysticism, Jewish customs, and the like. That was the core of what was, was seen already in Colossians chapters 1 and 2. Paul's writing to them somewhere around 59 to 61. He did not know them face to face. But Paul thanked God for these Christians in Colossae and their trust in the gospel that's been promoted around the world. He prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might walk worthily of the Lord. In Colossians 1, 3 through 12. That God made the Christians sufficient to partake in the inheritance. Uh, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation, to whom and through whom all things were made. All things consist in him. He's given preeminence in all things. All the fullness dwells in Jesus, and all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to God through him. In verses 12 through 20, the Colossians had been alienated from God, but God has reconciled them to himself in Jesus, and will continue as long as they remain grounded and steadfast in the gospel and its hope. And Paul spoke of how he was a minister of the gospel that is now preached everywhere in the rest of that chapter. Chapter 2 begins with Paul striving for the Colossian Christians to be comforted, united in love, to the riches of full understanding, so that none might deceive them with persuasive speech. They should walk as they receive Jesus to be rooted and established in their faith, full of thanksgiving in the first seven verses. And then he warned them against being plundered through appeals to philosophy and the elements of the world, and not according to Christ, that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and that he is above all rule and power, that Christians are as circumcised in baptism, they cut off the life of the flesh, uh, the Christians are made alive in Jesus through the forgiveness of sin. The record of debt is canceled, and he triumphed with the principalities and powers in verses 8 through 15. 
In the rest of that chapter, the Colossian Christians were not to be judged for not observing Jewish customs. They should not be led astray by those puffed up by mystical experiences uh, to submit to asceticism, which is really will worship. It doesn't benefit in overcoming the temptations of the flesh. And so now, having provided the theological meat of the letter, having encouraged them to look to Jesus as everything, as the, the, treasure, Richard, the treasure storehouse of wisdom and knowledge, as the image of the invisible God, as the one with all power, and they should not be plundered by all these different people trying to uh, seduce them away from the hope of the gospel. Now he wants to encourage them in their conduct, that they need to follow Jesus as the higher way. And so in the first four verses, Paul returns to the theme that he began to explore in chapter 2. Again, chapter divisions come later. Uh, they were not original to the letter. And so back in chapter 2, he talks about how Christians are buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of the God, for God who raised him from the dead, and that God has made us alive together with Jesus. And now he says, well, if you've been raised with Christ, past tense, not just because it's a past event, but also because it was something he talked about earlier in the letter, uh, that they're now to seek those things that are above. They've been raised up with him. They need to seek those things that are above. And since that's where Christ is at the right hand of God. Right hand of God is a reference to Psalm 110 and verse 1. It's also seen in uh, Jesus, by Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 64, and uh, Acts 2, 34, and 7, 55, where Peter and Stephen both testify that that is now where uh, Jesus is. The raising is of a spiritual nation, nature in this passage, excuse me, uh, hope and guarantee of future physical rising as well. And this is why the Colossian Christians are to set their minds on the things above, not the things on the earth, because they died and their lives are now hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ is manifest again, so will their life be. Um, to consider oneself as dead into sin and baptism, we see Romans 6, 3-7 being... It, it, Put to death the man of sin and arise to walk in news of life. And in Christ, Galatians 2 and verse 20. I, uh, no, I, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. It's a really compelling presentation of the now not yet of salvation. Because he says we are raised with Christ. That's a past tense real event. We should seek the higher way. But we are as dead because we await the manifestation of glory and life in Christ. When he is manifest to us again. When we will attain the resurrection of life. And this now will be the uh, theme for the exhortation to conduct. Uh, Greek fancy word for that is paranesis, uh, which is going to follow. Okay, so you seek what is above, what is life. You put to death what is of the earth, uh, which, which is what leads to death. And he begins by talking about what you need to put to death in verses um, 5 through 11. Uh, what are the kind of things that uh, manifest fleshy desires, that turn away from God, that dissolve relationships? These are the things that we should have set aside. And Paul talked about them also very strongly in Ephesians chapter 4. The Colossian Christians are told to put to death the earthly members in them. And these are described as sexually even behavior, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is, or greed, which is idolatry. And we're told that the wrath of God comes upon the disobedient for these things, that they once walked in them, but they're not to do that any longer. And verses 5 through 7 of Colossians 3, this is parallel to Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. 
Here we have five vices listed, and there's five virtues they'll be contrasted with in verse 12. A sexual behavior, uncleanness, passion, desire, all to be understood with a primarily sexual reference. They condemn not only the acts of sexual deviance, but the thought and feeling process that go into them or would pine for them. Now, again, we need to keep in mind this is all very consistent with the pagan world in which the Colossian Christians live, that a lot of these things would go on without anybody thinking twice about them, and that's why Paul uh, exhorts about it. Some would even see a sexual aspect to covetousness or greed, but probably not so, because uh, covetousness is being described as idolatry, very much in light of Matthew 6.24, where Jesus warns that you can't serve two masters, you cannot serve God and mammon, where Jesus is already kind of heading toward looking at wealth as a, a god, that people serve. And uh, this really helps reinforce that idolatry is not merely bowing down to a physical statue. It's any time we take any aspect of the creation and give it the glory due to the Creator. Kind of thing Paul condemned in Romans 1, 24 through 25. So all kinds of this behavior is to be put away. Christians are also to put away anger, wrath, malice, reviling, obscene talk. They shouldn't lie to each other. Well, they could have taken off the old man. And they have put on the new man, renewed in knowledge of Jesus. Uh, we see this also, not just in Colossians 3 through 10 here, but also in Ephesians 4, 21 through 32. These are all really terms of sinfulness in speech, corroding trust, poisoning minds, alienating people from God and from each other. And this exhortation to change the speech behaviors is rooted in transformation in Jesus. And this is not just a one-time transformation, it's a continual transformation, a continual renewing. Uh, that has to go on. And that taking off, putting on imagery is very uh, consistent throughout. Kind of have a little bit of renewing in spirit in Ephesians 4. Uh, putting on uh, the resurrection body is an idea in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Um, it's just like we talk about clothing. Uh, so we have to take off certain things that are bad. We have to put on that which is good. And in Jesus, the conclusion, verse 11 to this, is that there is no Greek or Jew uncircumcised or circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Very parallel Galatians 3.28, but with different emphases. Um, we don't see male and women, men and women mentioned here, but very much looking at uh, this from a, a important view of making it clear that everybody can be incorporated in Jesus. Barbarian. Uh, Greek word barbarian comes from barbaros, bar, bar, because all the Greeks thought everybody else's languages sound like bar, bar, bar. It's a very uh, derogatory term. Uh, the Greeks would feel that anybody who was not Greek could not be civilized because they weren't Greek. Uh, so, uh, it's pretty much the same way we use the term. Somebody who is uncivilized, uncouth, and therefore unworthy. A Scythian. Uh, Scythians are nomadic tribes of the Central Asian steppe area. It's proverbial in the ancient world for being wild, uncouth, unpredictable, and dangerous. Uh, this is not an elimination of national or other forms of difference. As we're going to see at the end of the book, uh, Paul still will talk about those who are of the circumcision, that still work with him, who are Jewish Christians. Um, and we're going to see later that even though he says here there is neither uh, slave or free, but he will talk about what slaves are to do and masters are to do in their various roles. So what Paul's doing instead is reinforcing the message of God is not showing partiality. 
in Christ, each man or woman stands with equal value and integrity before him. Nobody gets a pass or special treatment because of their nationality, their class, either because they are so civilized or so not civilized. Everybody is of equal value before God, and therefore we're supposed to treat everybody as equal before God. And that's why he puts this here. It kind of holds everything together. Why are we to put away these sinful things? Why are we to uh, not engage in these sexual passions or in these uh, relationship sins? Well, because everybody is of equal value before God. We're not that special. But it's not just the negative. In verse 12 through 17, we now have the positive. The things that the caution Christians now should be doing. How they should behave as these new men and women in Christ Jesus. Really, uh, it's not even the end of verse 17. Uh, what begins in verse 12 doesn't really end until chapter 4 and verse 1. But uh, another time, we will continue discussing, Lord willing, uh, what Paul has to say beginning verse 18 and following when it comes to how he put on uh, the new person in terms of his relationships. But here, in verse 12, Paul has establishes that uh, Christians, having taken off worldly behaviors, are now to put on a heart of kindness, compassion, humility, and meekness, long-suffering, as God's elect people, holy and beloved. So interesting, God's choice here of people is not just for them to be considered special for no reason at all. They're set aside for His purposes. And he loves them so that they would become more like Jesus, become more like him, to come back to him. That's the, the goal here. It's not self-serving. God didn't have to. God didn't have to care. But it's for our betterment. And so we need to be more like Jesus. How do you become more like Jesus? Well, what marked the life and ministry of Jesus? Well, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. As we can see in Matthew 9.36, Matthew 11.20-30 and other passages. Uh, we understand... Some of these terms, compassion, always a great way to talk about compassion, splangnizomai in Greek, which literally means um, uh, moving in the bowels. So when you come upon somebody and you literally feel for them, you can feel in your gut, so to speak, that's the compassion idea, that you feel with somebody. Uh, meekness is strength under control. This is not to be a doormat, to be rolled over, you know, that's the kind of the caricature of meekness in the world. No, meekness is when you can destroy everything, but don't. And Jesus, of course, is the great model of that. Kindness refers to behaviors, kind deeds. Yes, there needs to be a disposition before the deed is done, but it's about the deeds. Uh, humility is to have an accurate assessment of oneself, to not think more highly of oneself than one ought. Also can refer to not thinking one as worse off than one really is. Uh, patience, long-suffering, macrothumia, being able to endure without snapping for a long time. All these are very important ways Christians are able to relate to one another in a powerful way and also to show the love of Christ to others. Christians must also forbear one another, bearing with one another. And they forgive one another complaints against one another as Christ has forgiven them. And above all things, they're to put on love. The bond of perfection. And puts everything together in perfect harmony. We see this in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Ephesians 4, 32 as well. Um, 
much is made in the scriptures about forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That if we do not forgive others, Jesus is not going to forgive us. Therefore, we are to forgive others as we want the Lord to have forgiven us. And uh, the love, of course, of all important, 1 Corinthians 13. Bond of perfection puts everything together in harmony. Uh, it's, it's like a chain. We don't like looking at it that way, but that's what love does. Love binds us together. And we normally look at that in more positive terms, but it's there for a reason. Um, but Christians then also must allow the peace of Christ to rule in their hearts. They were called to this in one body, and they should be thankful in Colossians 3.13. In Ephesians 4 and verse 3, Paul put it in terms of that they should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here, we, of course, the idea of peace is that Christ secured peace by killing hostility on the cross in Ephesians 2.15-18. through 18. So peace is the end of inner conflict. So peace toward others comes by recognizing them as human, fellow humans made in the image of God, not better or worse than us, and that we're not projecting our own insecurities or weakness onto them, and thus able to consider their desires and their needs. And this is very powerful. That's how uh, unity works. Without that kind of disposition, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be strife. We need to develop that kind of uh, relationship with one another if we're going to glorify God in, uh, um, in the one body. And we're that's what the one body really gets to, is that unity. We talk about it in terms of doctrine, which is important. We need to have an agreement on, on the teachings of what is true. But it must go well beyond that and really involve uh, these characteristics where we're seeking to work together and seeking to build each other up and not just seeking after our own ways. Part of how we do that is, is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That we teach it in modest and all wisdom with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. The word of God provides sustenance, strength, and equipment. Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And 2 Timothy 3.17, that the scripture is sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work. And as in Ephesians 5.19, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs is a mean by which Christians teach and admonish one another. It's not exclusive, of course. We can teach in much in other ways, but the idea here in these verses is that our singing together, singing to one another, is a means of, of speaking, teaching, and admonishment. Now, how much we should understand nuance among psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is disputed. Maybe the different styles of song. Maybe there's a difference in type. Interestingly, when you look in the Greek of the psalms, you find in the psalms sometimes odes, which is spiritual songs, sometimes hymns. And so that might be different ways of categorizing those things. We're not quite sure. But the idea of the singing is it's directed toward one another, while done in the heart with grace toward God. Um, thankfulness in Ephesians 5.19. That uh, we are thankful for what God has done for us. We recognize the gift that God has given us. And we're giving it back to him. The song that we, he gave us, we give back to him. Very powerful, powerful thing. And it really speaks to the importance of song. And whatever Christians do in word or deed, in verse 17, are to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, with thanks being given to God through him. In the name of, means by the authority of. Uh, you sign a check, if you sign contracts, that your signature is your authority being given to empower that to become an effect. And this is the demonstration of the need to have authority from God in Christ for all that we say or do. Now, this is not a message that is detached from its context uh, 
other a lot of times will pull this out and use it that way but the letter of the Colossians has been all about the glorious Christ and his great power and authority and so really it is right and expected that we look to him for authority for how we talk and act after all if he is the image of the invisible God if he is the reason all creation exists if he is the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge if everything is subject to him we probably should pattern our lives after what he says we should do now, we should not overlook the idea of giving thanks here. It's a reminder of our dependence on God's love, grace, and mercy that he exercises by his power. It's not all about us. And a lot of times we get in a very entitled brat mode as Christians if we forget about how much God has done for us and how much that uh, we are always really in his debt and also how faithful he has proven despite all of our difficulties. And so in this way, Paul explains in exhortation how all might follow the higher way to manifest the character of Christ, to turn away from the ways of the world. So what are we to understand from this? This whole section is really about application. Uh, all, all these things are valuable for us, but we do well to point out certain things. When Paul writes this, he follows good rules of ancient rhetoric. He set forth a theological case, and now he makes an exhortation about conduct that follows. And we're not supposed to think of them as separate. Why do we do the things that we do? Because of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And so Paul has done a whole lot to exalt and glorify Jesus as the Christ, the image of the invisible God, the author of creation, the head of all power, the head of the church. We find the fullness and satisfaction of everything in him. And so his exhortations regarding conduct flow from this. If Christians are made alive in Jesus and raised up with Jesus, then we must elevate ourselves and our thinking and our conduct. There is a good channel for the sexual impulse, and God did make sexuality as good in Genesis 1 and 2. Sexuality has been greatly corrupted in the fall, and has become a main driver of worldliness, earthliness, and ungodliness. We see this today very powerfully. One of the great things leading people astray from the ways of God and Christ is this desire for sexual freedom and uh, a removal of all sexual hindrances. And... It was the same way in the early world of, uh, of Paul and, and the pagans and the early Christians. And so that's why Paul warns these ex-pagans away from not only sexual, sexual behavior, but also the lusts and passions that lead to that end. And God has made a good world for our use, but in the fall we've been corrupted our desires, and now we want to exploit and hoard beyond our needs to flatter our desires, to pursue some kind of permanence in the world through the accumulation and distribution of wealth. Paul indicts this as covetousness and as idolatry. It's not really trusting in God for provision, is it? No, it's in our own resources or resourcefulness. In verse 5, God has made man to be one with him and with each other, but our passions have been corrupted, and we use instead the words that he gave us to build up, to hurt, to harm and alienate one another in the name of puffing up ourselves through our anger, our wrath, our malice, slander, obscene talk, and lies. In verses 8 and 9, these are the ways of the world, but Christians have put on the new man to be continually renewed in Christ and so are to exhibit Christ's character in love and compassion, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. That we maintain peace, that we're saturated in our heart with the word of God in Christ. To sing an exhortation, to do all things in Jesus' name, thankful for what God has done for us in Jesus. In verses 12-17, these exhortations are timeless, as relevant to us now as they were to the Colossian Christians when they were written to 2,000 years ago almost. And so we very easily can contextualize these and use them as part of our own exhortation project. But unfortunately, we do that too often in a self-help mentality. Stop doing bad things and start doing good things. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you stopping the bad and doing the good? 
we need to be a little concerned about that kind of decontextualization. And we need to remember what Paul said immediately before he wrote all of this, which is, why do you submit to the regulations of the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that pressure there use, according to human precepts and teaching, that these things have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism to vary the body, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Everything he says in Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is not, you need to make yourself better on your own. It's all rooted in what God has done in Jesus and in power through him. We need to strive to imbibe the characteristics of Christ in our lives, but that's the point. It's not a bunch of disconnected, do this, don't do that, moralism. It's a comprehensive package in Jesus, all of which is designed not just not to annoy us or just to cause us difficulties, but for our health, for our wholeness, and for true living in relationship, in thriving. And so to seek the higher way is to be aligned with God's purposes that he has made known in Jesus, according to the way of the creation was established, and to realize the way of the world to fraud, to masquerade. It promises enjoyment, but only provides bitterness, misery, hostility, and ultimately death. And that is why we must strive for the higher way. It's also worth pointing out here, based on even current experience, what's a big critique of Christians these days? Just so obsessed with people doing the bedroom. Why are Christians so always talking about sex, 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 sex? Well, there's room for critique in the ways a lot of people who profess Christ have wanted to address matters of sexuality. But these concerns about sexuality go back all the way to Paul himself. And in Romans 1, 18-32, pagans forgot about God, no longer gave him thanks, started serving the creation rather than the creator, and how did that become manifest? Through sexually deviant behavior. And so four of the five vices in Colossians 3-5 refer to sexual issues. They leave a lot of other forms of sinful behavior out. This is not to suggest that this other form of sinful behavior is okay or acceptable. Instead, he deals with them in other contexts, Galatians 5, 19-21, and things like that. But as with modern society, so does ancient Rome. Pagans were recognized, yeah, we probably shouldn't murder, probably shouldn't steal, probably shouldn't do things like that. But the things that Christians see as sexual sin are very easily justified by pagans. And that is why Romans 1, that is why 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20 get right to the heart of a matter. That sexual depravity and thought, feeling, and action dehumanizes a person that commits these things. It focuses on the physical pleasure to the exclusion of the emotional, spiritual, and relational elements of sexuality. They dehumanize the object of human desire, turning uh, them into part, body parts and to objects for pleasurable use and dispensed with easily. To be honest, the way one looks at sexuality is a lot about one's view of God, about oneself, about the relationship to the world, to others, to what they think about a life. Uh, is it about satisfying desire? Or is it about human thriving as God intended in relationship? Sex is not all important, but it's very important. And we need to learn from Paul's continual emphasis on it that it needs to be channeled properly and to understand why its abuse is such a difficulty. Colossians 3.15 is very easy to read and pass over. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you recall one body and be thankful. Move on. We do well to meditate on that for a moment. What is this rule of the peace of Christ? The calling in one body in Jesus. Peace is not just the absence of hostility. As we saw in Ephesians 2.11-18, it's also the killing of hostility. 
We must truly die with Christ to have his peace rule in our heart. We need to die to temptations to sin against others in anger, in wrath, in slander, in judgmentalism. We need to die to ourselves, not ruled by our inadequacies, our insufficiencies, and our insecurities, and how we project them upon others. Christ killed hostility not by puffing himself up, not by uh, projecting strength in all things, but instead by being vulnerable, that he was wounded for our iniquity. He died for our sins. 1 Peter 2, 18-25. So if we want peace in our lives, we need to stop putting up our defenses against others. We need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable with each other, to recognize our own insufficiencies, to look one another as fellow human beings, and to see their fears, their weaknesses, their inadequacies, not to judge them as inferior, but to be able to empathize, to relate to them on a human level, and to be able to encourage them. And that's why, in verse 13, we're supposed to forbear one another, that we've been called into one body, that we're to seek to preserve the unity of that body in the bond of peace, in Ephesians 4, 3. And that's why we need to be vulnerable to each other, to accept one another, to be committed to one another, and not to give up on one another. Yes, God offers us peace in Jesus, but it's a costly peace. We need to give up our hurt. We need to give up our apprehension. We need to give up our fear. We need to give up our smug senses of superiority. Our feelings of justification blame for others, and we need to give up our insecurities. It's a very worthwhile exchange, but extremely painful. Peels back layers of an onion of our personality and our deepest self that we don't want exposed. And if we're willing to do that and to go through the pain of, this, of the sanitization of it, the cleansing of it, we will be better off for it. Colossians 3.16 is very often used, among many of us, as a proof text against the use of instruments. It's also very easily used as a verse to establish authority for singing and then to move on. That's kind of where it's left. But what Paul's doing here is extremely important. Why do we sing? Is it something we do just to pass some time before the sermon? Well, as Paul sets forth, it's a means by which we manifest the word of Christ that dwells in us richly. It's how we teach and admonish one another. This is very well understood by the great evangelists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. When they went and did their uh, evangelistic campaigns, they made sure to have some of the best song leaders in the world to set the tone for the preaching. Because they knew that songs teach the gospel in ways sermons never can. That one good hymn is worth a thousand lessons. Singing brings us together. It's singing manifests our unity in Christ. Our voices join together. Good songs stir the heart and spirit as much as the mind We, as we speak to each other in the song, the gospel and its life. Our voices blend together and become as one. In times of distress, songs will be there for us as words cannot. In the hour of trial, songs speak where words fail. Paul was singing and praying in the, in the jail in Philippi in Acts 16.25 for a reason. If songs have inspired and sustained resistance movements, how much more can they sustain Christians on their journey? The songs of the saints ascend before God. The saints need to sing on the higher way to the resurrection, and they will be known for their songs. And Colossians 3.17 is crucial to the faith. We must speak and do all things in the name of Jesus. We must have authority for all that we do. We must turn to Jesus as a treasury of all knowledge and wisdom. We must turn to Jesus to know how we should speak and live. We must turn to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, to seek after him. As we have seen earlier in Colossians 1 and 2. 
We are wise to keep asking by what authority we say and do the things we say and do. We must anchor them in what God has made known in Jesus. We need to be careful about self-justification. Be on the guard against attempts to baptize culture into Christ. Instead, we need to sift through what is truly godly from what everyone, and especially ourselves, would want to be godly. We need to do all things in the name of Jesus. And in Ephesians 4.23, Paul wanted Christians to be renewed in spirit. In Colossians 3.10, Paul spoke of Christians as renewed under the knowledge of the image of their creator. And this renewal is a continual thing. It can't just be a one-time thing. All things mentioned about the higher way that we've talked about are continual and progressive. One of the things they don't tell you about at the beginning when you serve Christ is that over time, some of the greatest dangers come. Because it's easy to get dulled in hearing. Easy to become weary in resistance. Easy to start beginning to justify those earthly desires within us. We need to instead constantly find refreshment in Christ to turn away from these kind of justifications. As we grow in Christ, we ascertain more ways that we need to be renewed in the image of our Creator. We need to overcome some difficulties just to manifest deeper difficulties. It's like peeling that onion layer. You layer after layer after layer to get to the core. And God does this for our good because we would be overwhelmed if the minute we came to Christ, everything that we needed to change and make better was manifest to us. God instead works throughout our lives to help us become more and more like Jesus. But this means that the work is never done. We need to continually work to put off the old man and put on the new man. We must continually submit to the peace of Christ. We must continually teach and admonish in song. We need to continually seek authority for our words and deeds. And above all, we must continually progressively work to stop trying to do this by our own unaided efforts and instead prove much more willing to trust in God and Christ in submission, to submit to his purposes and allow him to work through us powerfully to put our trust truly in him and not ourselves. And so this way, Paul's exhortations in Colossians begin strongly. We've been raised with Christ, and we should live according to that higher path. When you turn aside from and put off the vices of the world, we must put on the ways of Christ and to work to embody his character. And thus may we seek to follow Jesus in all things, to be renewed after his image, to sing the songs of the saints, and to obtain the resurrection of life. We're getting glad that you joined us today. And if you've been benefited by this, we'd encourage you to please share it with friends, family, and others on social media. If we can be of any service, you'd like to talk about these things, if you have a prayer request, if you'd like to study the Bible through a study or correspondence course, or you'd like to find out more about us, so come check us out. Please uh, find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on other forms of social media. And if I can be of any service personally, please reach out to me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.